We open our Bibles uh, today to Thessalonians, and uh, as uh, as I began to read and reread First and Second Thessalonians and do a little study, I decided to to cover both letters in one sermon. So we're going to do First and Second Thessalonians this morning, and then move on through the Bible in the coming weeks. Um, the main reason for that is because in 1 Thessalonians, it's a short letter meant to encourage Christians who were under persecution. And uh, Paul just touches on a whole bunch of different topics, doesn't get into depth, and it's, it's easy to just read and understand what he's saying. Uh, but there's, there's one theme that kind of follows through 1 Thessalonians as the main point of encouragement that he's giving. And then as, he, as the people in Thessalonica, the Christians read that letter, uh, they are encouraged, but there's one part of it that they, they suffer a little confusion about. And Paul gets word of that, and so he writes another letter, 2 Thessalonians. It's not a new topic, it's a, not a new thing, it's not a new situation, it's a further commentary or clarification on some of the points he made in the first letter. So it's essentially one message between the two letters. And so we'll take them together this morning. I want to begin with a question. And the question is this. How does a person in such a bad place write such an encouraging letter? I think you kind of um, can identify with that question a little bit uh, from your own life. Uh, we, we all struggle with, with the idea in Christianity, in our faith, our, our discipleship, that sometimes it's not going well for me personally, but I'm still supposed to live a holy life. I'm still supposed to um, have a, a, a joyful attitude, pray continually. I'm not supposed to let my ethical standards fall just because I'm having a bad day or a bad week or a bad month. And that's difficult. It, it's so easy to, to pass the buck or find an excuse. Well, I mean, I mean, I know because one of the things I suffer from is lower back pain sometimes. It's really hard to be a nice guy when the pain's shooting up and down your legs. It, it's hard to, to be loving when that's happening. So, um, so I don't know what you struggle with or, or what you're doing, but, but we find it very easy to make excuses and let our standards down when we think it's not going well for me personally. Well, it's okay just now. You know, in a month when I get that back together, uh, when I overcome that sickness or, or this pain or emotional difficulty, then, uh, then I'll get back to my ethical and behavior standards. That's easy to do. In the context here, when Paul wrote this letter, he was having a bad time. He was not doing well. I want to show you. Now, I'm not week by week going through the, the historical context of these letters from the pulpit here on Sunday mornings. But that story is on our website under The Greatest Story and you can listen to it there, you can watch the slides and you can uh, be up to date on the, on the historical context of each of these books as we come through them. And, and there'll be more, if you read them, I hope you're reading the books along as we go, um, they'll, they'll, they'll make more sense to you if you read them in the context in which they were written. Uh, so that's there on our website for you. But this morning, because it's pertinent to the message that he's giving, I'm going to talk about the context. So I don't know if you can see that on the map, but that's if you can't, it's just an advertisement to go on our website and you can see it when you watch the whole thing there. So uh, what happens? what's happening here 
is it's the second missionary journey. Paul is traveling with Silas and Timothy, probably Luke and some others. And, uh, and they, they've been now to three cities, planted three churches, or started three works. And in each case, they've been run out of town violently. They've been beaten. They've been put in prison. Uh, they've been whipped uh, and probably are still trying to heal from the physical effects of, of that on their bodies. And they've been run out of town. They, they can't finish the work. They start to gather a community of believers together. They start to lay the foundation for a church that can sustain itself. And then they're run out of town before they can finish. Must have been terribly discouraging uh, to just, just feel like you're getting started and then you've got to go uh, because things have gotten out of hand. So for the purposes of our story here this morning, the, the fourth place then that they come to is Thessalonica. They travel to Thessalonica, and Thessalonica is unique. It's the largest city in the region. So if you look on the map there, all the way from Greece, all the way up, that whole area, Thessalonica is the largest place. The archaeologists tell us that in the time when Paul was there, there was probably around 200,000 people living in that city. Now for, for the ancient world, that's absolutely huge. I mean, just try to think about that for a minute. Think about what it would take to get enough food into a city of 200,000 people if it all has to come in on mules and carts. That's a huge undertaking. It almost seems impossible to me. But they did it. They had a system in place and they did it. But the really unique thing about Thessalonica is it was an independent city. What that means, it had never been taken over by Roman armies. When the, when the Romans had come and were step-by-step taking over that part of the world, the officials in Thessalonica had gone out to the Romans and they'd, and they'd negotiated a treaty. So the Romans would not come into Thessalonica. They would not set up a garrison. They would not police the city. They would leave the city officials to do it themselves as long as the Thessalonican uh, city citizens and, and leadership uh, held their end of the treaty with the Romans. The Romans would hold their end of the treaty and stay out of the city. So it was a free city. Surrounded by conquered land. Maybe that's why it was so big. Because everyone wanted to live in a free city. I don't know. That's just speculation. But we like freedom, don't we? This also means that it was metropolitan. It had people from every nation and language and culture. And and it was all there. And when Paul and Silas and Timothy and the others arrived in Thessalonica. They began to preach the gospel. And look for people first in the synagogues and then around. And their mission was very successful, probably the most successful church plant. And the reason we, we think that is because in, in uh, you know, for example, in, in one place it seemed to be just among some, some, some women that the church was started and then some others. And, and in other places it seems it was mostly slaves or, or really poor people uh, because uh, Paul was always talking about that in his letters uh, but in Thessalonica, it's even mentioned uh, that, that some very prominent people in the city uh, were converted and joined the church. And it was a wide, uh, it was a very successful mission. But not long after they started, and just when they were starting to gather these people together and teach them the basics about discipleship and church and, and how to be followers of Jesus, uh, the Jews who had rejected the message became jealous because the the, the Christians were, were pulling so many people. And so they came up with this scheme, very effective scheme, that accused Paul of teaching or promoting that there was a different king other than Caesar. 
Now you understand in a free city that's trying to keep the Romans out, that would be a political hot button, probably the hottest button. If they could make this shift the blame on Paul to say that he's preaching a king other than Caesar, that would break the treaty and the Romans would come in with their troops and take over the city. So that, was, that, that caused riots in the street. Nobody wanted that to happen. It wasn't true. I mean, Paul was preaching another king, Jesus Christ, but he wasn't about to come and rule that city in the way they were thinking. Uh, but but that's that's what happened and and he uh, there was trouble there was riots uh, they came, the mob came looking for Paul and Silas didn't find them uh, carried off one of the other church leaders uh, and dragged them through the streets before the courts and it w- it was just terrible it was it was very very dangerous and so uh, Paul didn't want to but but they convinced him to sneak out of town to leave because it seemed like he was the lightning rod. The accusations were against him and perhaps things would calm down if Paul left. And I don't know what happened. We don't have the, the details, but, but they moved on then to the, a, a nearby place called Berea, which is a more of a farming community. So that'd be like going from Edmonton to Wainwright. Uh, and, and again, they started a church and it was going well. Um, there was little opposition in Berea and and it wasn't long when they were in that when all the when the people who had caused the trouble in Thessalonica traveled to Berea and caused the same trouble again. And the mobs rose up and, and it was again very dangerous. It became evident that no matter where Paul went in that region, there would be trouble, there would be violence, people would be killed. And so in order to, to for the safety of the people. They put Paul on a ship. I suspect they went down to the port, tried to get there before people caught them, and, and just wherever they could get passage, they put him on a ship, and he left. And, he, and the ship he was on went to Athens. So now, five cities in a row, he's been chased out of violently. Sometimes violence upon his own body, but even if it's not upon his own body, other people he knows and loves have been hurt physically, But can you imagine the emotional toll of of just when things seem to be going, then it happens again and again and again. He gets to Athens. He's all by himself. There's no support around him. His friends have stayed behind to try to to, uh, build up the churches. And uh, he does what he always does. He starts to preach the gospel. He gets noticed. He He gets an audience with some of the philosophers and he debates them. But in Athens, no church is started. It's a complete failure. And then, I think, I don't know, but we can kind of piece it together. See, in Athens, he didn't have his support group around him. There was no people became Christians, so there was no home for him to go in and eat. We have no, no, he never mentions that he, he started up his business, his tent-making business, which he did in various other cities in Athens. So he probably had nothing to eat. And he leaves town defeated and depressed, goes to Corinth nearby. And we know this because much later, when he writes a letter to the Corinthians, he describes how he arrived in Corinth. I'm not going to put that one on the screen, but, but in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 3, this is what he says. I came to you, the Corinthians, in weakness and fear and with much trembling. I believe he's talking about physically weak. He's probably still healing his body from beatings. He hasn't probably eaten a lot in Athens because he didn't have anything. He had no support. In weakness, in fear, 
afraid to even open his mouth because something's going to happen. People he gets to know and starts to love and then there'll be violence and he'll be chased out of town again. And with trembling. And I'm not, I wouldn't be surprised if he meant physically when he was talking to them, he was actually trembling. He was at the lowest low. He was not doing well when he arrived in Corinth. And then in Corinth, shortly after he gets there, he gets word from Timothy, who's still up in the Thessalonican region. He's going to meet him in a, in a little bit in Corinth, but he's still up there. In fact, probably what happened is Timothy traveled down and brought the message. But the message was this. There still is severe persecution in Thessalonica, and some have died. They're doing well. They're keeping the faith. They're, they're living well. They're living rightly. But it's, it's discouraging. So Paul is at the bottom of his resources. And he's just... As he says, fear, trembling, and weak. And he sits down to write a letter to the, to the Thessalonican church. And it's one of the most encouraging letters you could ever read. I mean, you just have to, have to just pay attention for a moment. You can look at these verses. Uh, uh, to strengthen and encourage your faith. That's why he's writing it. And he talks about encouraging one another with the words I'm writing to you. And encourage one another and build each other up. Encourage and don't be disheartened and encourage your hearts. And it's, it's just the continued theme in these books. And if you, sometimes in, in Thess- Thessalonians, I think we have a little bit of a, a blinders on sometimes. Because we know, we all know that in First and Second Thessalonians, Paul talks about the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he talks about the Antichrist at length. And so we're so keyed into, oh, can we figure this out? How does this happen? That we forget to read it for what it is, which is encouragement. So put that aside when you read First and Second Thessalonians, because Paul himself says that the reason he's writing this is to encourage persecuted Christians. So it's a very encouraging letter if you read it from that point of view. You ask yourself, each verse, each line, each chapter, what is encouraging? How does this build me up and encourage me? And you'll get something different out of it if you've just got the blinders on to see what it says about the end times. It does say about that, uh, but, uh, but, but but that's not the reason he wrote it. And so how that comes together is this. He says, therefore, encourage one another with these words. And the words that he's on about in these letters is the hope we have in the return of Jesus Christ. We know this because he, t- he, he touches on various different topics, which are not complicated. You can read it for yourself. I don't have to preach a message for you to understand what he says. But he ends each discourse the same way. I want to show that to you. In, uh, in 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 1, he ends the chapter with these words. I'm going to start um, on the first full sentence there. They tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. So he ends the discourse in chapter 1 with this encouragement, this, this, this uh, teaching to, to wait for the Son from heaven. That wouldn't mean much, but we go on. Chapter 2, how does he end chapter 2? The next little bit of topics that he brings up. Same way. 
For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. So once again, he ends chapter 2 as he did chapter 1 with a focus on the hope of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then, <clears throat> excuse me, chapter 3, uh, same thing again. May the, Lord, may the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. May He strengthen you in your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. And here he's clearly connecting. I think he is all through the letter, but here he's very clearly connecting the holy behavior, the right living, with the hope of the return of Jesus Christ. Now in chapter 4 he goes into the most detail, but here again he's just ending the chapter with the same topic. Let's read that together. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in Him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you, that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. And then here's the topic of Thessalonians. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. It's the purpose of his writing. Each chapter ends with the same topic. Whatever you're thinking about, make it in reference to the return. Encourage one another. This is what brings you the encouragement you need. And then to finish it off, chapter 5, the last chapter in 1 Thessalonians, ends exactly the same way. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your Holy Spirit's, or, or may, <coughs> sorry, may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful and will do it. And again, you see the connection between holy living and the hope we have in the return of Jesus Christ. And this is all for your encouragement. And so each chapter, each discourse ends with this focus on the hope we have in Jesus Christ. And so I think I can confidently say that in the Thessalonians, God is saying to us, rightly focused hope results in right living. Rightly focused hope results in right and proper holy living. And this is the encouragement. This is the thing that encourages us because we can set our sights on all kinds of other things and try to live rightly and it might not get us there. But if we put our hope in the right place, that will guide us into that kind of living. And they got the message. They, they read it, they understood it, they were encouraged. And we know from what we read in, in 2 Thessalonians that they, they actually lived according to that hope. And, and the, the gospel was spread throughout the whole region because of their faithfulness 
even under persecution. You can read 2 Thessalonians for yourself and see all of that. But we, Paul did get word that there was a misunderstanding uh, from his writing of 1 Thessalonians. And so he writes 2 Thessalonians to clear up that misunderstanding. <clears throat> now, unfortunately for us, uh, what he writes in 2 Thessalonians, particularly regarding the Antichrist, is probably some of the most difficult part in all of the New Testament to understand and uh, theologically parse out and, and, and tell you what it means. And uh, I, I, can, I, I would be the first to put up my hand and say, I don't think I can do that. I've tried. I've tried to read those verses, put them together with other parts of the Bible, and this, this Bible teacher says it says this and that, and I can't figure out who's right. It's confusing. But that doesn't mean that we can't get the point Paul was trying to make because he, he makes two very clear points that are not confusing and that we all agree upon no matter where we fall out in terms of how we understand the details of that passage. And so um, <clears throat> they got the message, but they overreacted. So uh, the first thing that, hap- that Paul teaches them is payback belongs to God. So... They're persecuted. They want justice. They're, they're wrongly accused. They haven't done anything wrong. And yet they're being beaten and they're being put in prison. And we believe, I believe some of them have been martyred. Uh, and so they want justice. And, and they're, they're concerned about that. But Paul makes it very clear here in 2 Thessalonians that payback belongs to God. Chapter 1, verse 6. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. So again, here it's focused on the hope we have in the return of Jesus Christ. That's when things will be put right. He goes on. He will punish those who do not know God And do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. On the day he comes, he will be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. This includes you because you believed our testimony. Now I can assure you, you don't want to be among those of whom everlasting destruction and being shut out from the presence of the Lord and His glory occurs. You don't want to be, you don't want any of your friends or family to be, you don't want anyone you know to be. In fact, you don't want anyone in the world to be in that class of people. So that should be a powerful motivation for us to get out and share the gospel. That's the motivation for which Paul, despite being beaten again and again and run out of town, continued wherever he went to open his mouth and share the good news. But the, uh, the, the, the thing that, that he, the, the outcome of this hope is here in the previous verse where it says, uh, this will happen, this payback for the trouble you're enduring will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven and when he returns. So don't focus on that. Don't don't get all tied in knots about that because uh, it's going to happen. Jesus will take care of it, but that's our hope in the future. Right now, get on with sharing the message and don't get distracted by putting all your energy into finding justice here before Jesus returns. 
The second thing that he, he makes very clear here is do not be so easily unsettled by prophets. That's my words, not his. But I think when, you, when we read the verses together, you'll see exactly what I mean. In the second chapter of Second Thessalonians, he puts it this way. Dear brothers and sisters, let us, let us clarify some things about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and how we will be gathered to meet him. So there's been some confusion, some infighting about end times. Ever hear of that before? He says, do not be so easily shaken or alarmed by those who say that the day of the Lord has come already. Don't believe them. Even if they claim to have had spiritual visions, a revelation, or a letter supposedly from us. Then he goes on to the discourse about the Antichrist, which I find very confusing. Couldn't tell you exactly what it means. But what it's clear, what's absolutely clear to me as I read that, is all that's important to us today. And that is, um, when it happens, we won't be confused about whether or not it's happening. I think he makes that very clear. Because they've kind of come, some of them have come to believe that, well, maybe Jesus already turned and all these things have already happened. And then therefore those who've already died are missing out on the return of Jesus. And he's telling them, don't worry about that. Don't, don't be confused. Don't get fighting with one another about what it means. When these things occur, it will be right out in the open. You'll all see it. You'll all know what's happening. There will be no confusion. But in the meantime... Set your hope on the return of the Lord Jesus Christ and live rightly in the, present, in, in the presence or in light of that hope and you'll, you'll be okay. You'll get it right. So be encouraged. You haven't missed it. You're not going to miss it. Even if this person thinks this and that person thinks that, you'll see it when it's happening. Don't concern yourself with that. Concern yourself with living rightly towards the hope that we have. I love this verse. I don't know if it really has much to do with my sermon, but let's read it. As we pray to our God and Father about you, we think of your faithful work, your loving deeds, and the enduring hope you have because of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's how he sums up their behavior, what, what kind of people they are and they should be. Faithful work. Looking towards the hope of Jesus' return, work faithfully towards that hope. Loving deeds. despite the, the, He's writing to people who are being beaten in the streets and killed for their faith and run out of town. And yet their reputation for faithful work and loving deeds is spreading throughout the entire region so that many are turning to Jesus Christ. And all of this because they have an enduring hope that their Lord Jesus Christ will return. And they're living their lives towards that hope. So, so what's the uh, answer to the question? How does a person in such a bad plight, place write such an encouraging letter? He's physically weak, he's emotionally in fear, and he's trembling. I don't know if that means physically, or if it means in his heart, and his psyche, if he's psychologically unbalanced, has PTSD from all the beatings and violence he's, a, he's experienced. I don't know. 
But he's not in a good place personally, and yet he writes such an encouraging letter. Why is that? It's because he's not discouraged. He might be depressed, but he's not discouraged. He might be experiencing physical pain, but he's not discouraged. He might be having flashbacks in his dreams and not sleeping well, but he's not discouraged. And why is that? Because he has not put his hope in this world. He has not put his hope in a psychologist that can clear up his depression. He has not put his hope in a medication that can take his pain away. I'm not saying he's not doing those things, but that's not where his hope lies. He has not put his hope in, in, a, in, in education and in improving himself in the next book or the next seminar he can go to that will help him overcome these things. No, he hasn't put his hope in that. He has not put his hope in the church. He knows it's flawed. He knows it's broken. He's put his hope in the return of Jesus Christ. And even if these physical and emotional things he's suffering don't get solved, he doesn't care. He's not discouraged. He's realistic about the struggles he's personally having, but he's not discouraged. And he can write a letter. The most encouraging stuff you can read is First and Second Thessalonians if you read it with that mindset instead of with the end times mindset. He can write the most encouraging letter to discouraged people even though he himself personally is in a bad place because he hasn't put his hope in the wrong things. His hope is in the Lord and his return. This is something that, again, I think you know. You know how this works in other parts of your life. Let me tell you a story about I mean, this isn't on the level of the hope of the Lord's return, but it's maybe something you can relate to and understand how hope changes behavior, changes attitude, changes outcomes. Some time ago, several years ago, I was asked by a couple who had grown up in Wainwright, living in Edmonton, if I would marry them. I never agree to marry people right off the top. We need to get together see if there's a compatibility, see if the dates work out, see if they actually want a Christian wedding, because I'm not going to do a different kind of wedding. And uh, usually I, I uh, unless there's other circumstances that make it reasonable, usually I require them to, to engage in some pre-marriage counseling before the wedding, because I, I just think uh, if you're not going to take it seriously enough to prepare, then maybe I don't want to be involved. And so uh, I went to their house in Edmonton, they, they had been in youth group here in this church, and that's why they, they called this church when they started thinking about something that they wanted to kind of uh, involve God in, their wedding, even though their life had not been in that direction for many years. Uh, and so I went to see them, and they invited me into their home for dinner so we could have that first conversation. And uh, I, I, I don't know how I could describe their home. It's important to my story that you understand what, what I encountered. Uh, it was absolutely normal. Nothing stood out as different from normal. There was a few shoes kicked off at the door, some on the rack, some tumbled down. Uh, it was relatively clean, but there was uh, music CDs on the, on the side table by the couch and DVDs on the coffee table and a few dirty dishes in the sink, a few clean ones drying on the rack. It was absolutely in every way ordinary, like any other house. 
We sat down at the table, we ate dinner together, got to know each other, looked at our calendars to see if the dates for weddings would work out between them and me, talked about, uh, about wedding and, and uh, pre-marriage counseling and stuff like that, and, and we agreed, this is going to work out. I'll, I agreed to marry them. And so over the next six or so months, I visited them in their house about once or twice a month uh, for the counseling, and I noticed something as I visited them. Things began to change. They had set their priority, their goal, their hope on a date in the future that had not yet come, an event that was not yet real, their wedding. And having set their their hope on that day in that event that was still in the future, it slowly but surely over the months, over the weeks, began to change everything about their life. First time I returned, or the second time I went there, uh, there was some really minor changes. For example... um, I noticed that there was some, some, uh, some wedding album CDs, music, on the stand along with the other music they listened to. And uh, on the table there was some, some bridal uh, magazines, periodical type of things with, with uh, different bookmarks and pages turned over where ideas for invitations and different things. So small change, small change, but something had changed as they, as they were beginning to live towards that hope that they had for something that was not yet real. Now, I'm not going to go through the details, but you've, you've all been married yourself or had children or grandchildren get married or close friends or somewhere in your life there's been, you, you've experienced this kind of thing. You know what I'm talking about. But I'll just come to the, the, the end of it in that when the last time I went to their house, their house was overtaken by wedding. We couldn't even eat at the table or anything. Every surface, everything. There was invitations. There was signing. There was lists of this and lists of that. There was flower arrangements. There was tuxedos. Which one do you like better? Everything in their house was wedding. Their whole life had been overtaken by this event that had not yet happened that they were living their lives towards. But it wasn't just in the physics of their house. It was also in their relationships, in their person. I'm not going to dig into their personal stuff. Some of you might figure out who it is I'm talking about, but I'll just tell you one thing that I'm sure they, they wouldn't mind me sharing with you. Uh, they had, when, when we got into the pre-marriage counseling, there was a topic I soon discovered that was off limits. That was the topic of children. Every time they talked about having a family, they got into an unsolvable fight and, uh, gave each other the cold shoulder for, for days or, or who knows how long after. They wouldn't talk about it. It wasn't allowed. But they had this date coming up when they were going to get married. And part of the reason they decided in their, in their movement away from God, but then now looking at marriage back, is because they wanted to have children and they didn't want to have ch- children without marriage because they believed enough to know that was wrong. And so we worked on communication skills. Uh, I, I don't want to claim that I'm so wise, but I have resources that I go to for pre-marriage counseling, and, and I had some exercises for different things that are commonly troubling for couples, one of them being marriage, family planning. Uh, how are we going to do this? How are we going to rate our kids? How many are we going to have? And all of that stuff. And so I gave them the exercises, went through, told them how they work, and said, you know, I can't do this for you, but hopefully before I come and visit you next time, you've worked your way through this stuff. Well, the next time I arrived, they both came to the door and they were beaming. They were so happy they could hardly sit down to tell me. 
They'd gone through the exercise. They'd had a real all-out fight about their differences of opinions about children. They'd gone, but they'd fought fair. And in the end, they'd come to an agreement and understanding of each other that they were both were really excited about and they were on the same page now. They would have never done that. Never. If they had not set a date and a hope in the future, something that was not yet real, but they were living their lives towards. I'm sure what would have happened is somewhere along the line, if they had not done that, set that hope, they would have had kids. And they would have fought, probably been divorced. I don't know if they're... I saw them not long ago at the well before skating rinks and stuff closed and they'd been visiting family here and they had a little baby and they were happy and were, ran across to see me. So that, that's a hope in this world. It's not adequate, but it tells you something you already know. Uh, when you set that hope before yourself, something that's not yet real but you're living towards... It can change you. Rightly focused hope results in right living. What is that sin, that temptation, that thought pattern that you struggle with? You thought you would have overcome it by now in your life. Maybe it's still there because you haven't put your hope in the right place. Maybe you've put your hope in your own self-control. And you think, well, I'm a pretty, uh, I, I, you know, I can get to work on time. I can do this. I can control myself. You know, I'm pretty capable there. If I just apply myself to this problem I have, this sin, this disobedience, this argument, whatever it is, this thought pattern that's dragging me down. Maybe if I, 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 got, I, I got this, I can do this. And you put your hope in your own self-control. It's not adequate. You probably already know that. Maybe you've put your hope in education. If I read the right book, if I take the right seminar, if I go to the right marriage class, if I, if I just get the right information, then I'm going to be able to overcome this thing I'm struggling with that I know does not please the Lord. Maybe you've put your hope in a psychologist or a doctor or a friend. Maybe you've put your hope in this church and you're sitting there thinking, you know, I thought this church would have helped me with this struggle I have, but it hasn't. You're disappointed and discouraged. This church is not adequate for what you need. Paul is telling us, put your hope in the return of the Lord Jesus Christ outside of this world. And that's and then and then bit by bit, like that couple anticipating their, their wedding. If you truly put your hope there, bit by bit your life will come in line towards that to which you've put your hope. Until it's all consuming. And it affects every corner of your life physical, emotional, spiritual, psychological. Paul is telling us that that's where the strength comes from, to endure. That's how we overcome the discouragement of persecution 
of setbacks, of all these different things that we struggle with. I don't think our struggles are near to what the Thessalonians were struggling with. We haven't been beaten for our faith. We haven't been asked to give our lives. But they were. He, Paul was. Despite his personal low point, he was not discouraged. I believe his point of view was, if my body never heals, when Jesus comes, I'm going to see him, I'm going to meet him, and it's going to be great. If I stay in this depression forever, when Jesus comes, I'm going to be joyful, I'm going to sing, I'm going to dance. It'll be good forever. It doesn't matter. If I have these reoccurring PTS dreams every night and never get a good sleep again in my life, it doesn't matter. It's a struggle. Yes, it's difficult. He's not saying that. But I put my hope in the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm living my life towards that hope. And all these other things fall into line and diminish as a result. Now, I'm not saying that these things won't be healed in this life as we put our hope there. But if we put our hope in the fact that they'll be overcome right now, then we put our hope in something smaller and inadequate. This life will have troubles. It always will. If we overcome one, there will be another. And if we keep our eyes focused on the things we can accomplish here in this world, will be discouraged. Put your hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul said it this way, Therefore, encourage one another with these words. It is described in the Bible as a wedding, isn't it? That Jesus is the groom who will come and the church collectively is the bride that is living in anticipation of that day that is not yet when everything will be changed. And when he comes, he will take us into the banquet where there's adequate resources for all of our needs, our emotional needs, our physical needs, our spiritual needs. Let's put our hope on that menu. And I truly believe that the result of rightly focused hope is right living. Sometimes we struggle with living right because we put our hope in the wrong things. They're not adequate to the needs. I don't have anything else to say about that. It's an encouraging message. I encourage you to read read the Thessalonians for yourself with these thoughts in mind. And allow, allow the Lord Jesus to build up in your heart the anticipation of His coming that will eventually... As, it, as that anticipation grows, will overtake everything else. And despite the hardship, you'll be filled with joy.